I am recording now that you said that. Yes. Cool. All right. Uh, so it is episode number four of the Conscious Bodybuilding Podcast. Uh, today we have my co-host on Matt Bellino, and we also have Dr. Damon McCune on. Uh, Dr. Damon McCune has also he has a PhD, uh, RDN, and LD. What what is an LD? I'm sorry. <laughs> It's redundant. So in, uh, in Nevada, we have licensure as dietitian. So I'm a registered dietitian, but in Nevada, oh. part of the law is that I have to list that I'm also licensed. So it's, it's just licensed dietitian. It's redundant. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, and then, and, but that means you can work with uh, the, the, the dietitian aspect of it allows you to work with um, people with uh, uh, other conditions such as diabetes and things like that. Right. Cause otherwise right. You, you can't. So, so. The, yeah, the way that it's referred to is I'm able to practice medical nutrition therapy. Oh, cool, cool. And then um, uh, Damon is also the co-founder of Allied uh, Performance Nutrition. Is that is that the correct term? Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, and, it's just Allied Performance. It's uh, performance. my fiance and I's private practice. Cool. And you guys do um, nutrition consultation, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then he's we also, also do, the uh, yeah. consulting for um, uh, medical uh, uh, practices. Oh, cool. And then he's also the co-founder of The Vertical Diet, which is actually how I originally met uh, Damon. A uh, quick little tangent. So uh, this is actually kind of relates to why I'm even doing the podcast. But uh, the way I met Damon was at a Vertical Diet seminar in uh, Vegas a couple of years back. And uh, it was like a very um, like profound experience for me just because uh, it was like a group of like, I don't know, two or three other competitors at the time. And I had just done a contest prep that I actually wasn't able to finish because I actually got sick. Um, and it was because of the old school practices I was doing uh, literally in the gym for four hours a day. I was had no fat in my diet. Um, I actually was like having trouble actually standing up and I uh, was having anxiety attacks, things like that. I just never had experienced before. And I was standing in the circle of all these people who had experienced similar things. And a lot of them had already tried the diet and they were like, you know, I didn't have any of that. I felt so much better. My health was improved. And it was just really, uh, like uh, it was a, a turning point for myself because I realized like a lot of the stuff that's being practiced that's that's still being practiced is is kind of outdated and and it made me really start to actually look into the research. I started with the vertical diet, looking through the evidence on there, and then just went off from there. Like I got to learn this and this and this. So um, I wanted to thank you for that, and uh, you know, uh, just that's kind of why I'm even doing this podcast in the first place. Is that that was the turning point for myself where I stopped doing all the bro science stuff and started getting into the actual science of things. So, well, I'm glad it's worked so well for you, man. It's, that means a lot. So, yeah. So, uh, and I think Matt does some of the vertical diet uh, as well to an extent. Uh, components of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, to get into today's questions, uh, I think Matt, you had a, a question that you wanted yep. to ask Damon. Yeah, so we started off. Um, the first question I wanted to ask was what you researched when you were doing uh, your PhD. Sure. Uh, so there's going to be a little bit longer answer than you bargained for. <laughs> right, right. Uh, All good. A, a lot of people are not necessarily familiar with the, the process. So I, you, when you go through a PhD, you actually do a lot of research. And so I was involved in a lot of stuff that wasn't necessarily just my dissertation. Um, so my, my master's research was on 25-hydroxyvitamin D, IGF-1, and metabolic syndrome. And then uh, my dissertation research was on carbohydrate manipulation in resistance training, and I look specifically at squats. My overall research is really just based on uh, optimizing human performance through physical activity and nutrition. So um, a whole spectrum there. I mean, that's a, that's a really broad thing, but really if it involves 
you know, any kind of health or, you know, performance, you know, aspect. And that can be, it doesn't just mean athletic performance. That means performance just in terms of like your body's performance on a daily basis and, and your activities of daily living. Um, ways to really make that as, as, as the best that it can be and optimize it. So uh, my, my dissertation work, I looked at carbohydrate manipulation on squats. Um, and as of right now, I believe I'm still the only person in the world who's looked at mouth rinsing on squat performance, um, which was a pretty interesting experience. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with that, um, a mouth rinse is just what it sounds like. You just rinse some stuff around in your mouth for five seconds and spit it out. You don't swallow anything. Um, it's really, really interesting findings on blood glucose. Uh, almost half of my participants had a, a significant spike in their blood glucose following uh, the squat protocol. They did five sets of squats. Uh, we standardized the weight that they used. They only used 135 pounds. So they, the first three sets, they did 10 reps and that was standard. Then the fourth and fifth set, they went to failure. Um, and it was basically until they couldn't feel comfortable doing another full rep. So, you know, that varied tremendously, but that changed their training volume. So I, that's what I was looking at was, could we impact training volume by doing these different manipulations with the carbohydrate? And almost half of my participants had, I mean, just very, very unexpected spikes in their blood glucose. So uh, that's a, that's a new thing. We really haven't. Yeah. Is that a, is that a mouth rinse with a carbohydrate mixture? Yeah, and it was essentially about the concentration of Gatorade. Uh, so I did uh, two to one glucose to fructose, um, and I I just used dextrose and, and fructose powder uh, to yeah. do it. And so um, they did twenty five milliliters right before the fourth set, and then again right before the fifth set. So I had them treat it like an ammonia cap, and okay. then three minutes rest, and they did their their last set. So um, what's really interesting is that you know if you're under a lot of uh, very you know acute stress like that, uh, your body will increase uh, the release of glucose into the bloodstream at a higher rate than your muscles can actually take in. So that's why if you're like a type one diabetic or you're insulin dependent, you know, there's some training protocols that may be problematic uh, because, you know, the body's going to start to release that stuff in there. So this, this was actually one of those where if, you know, if I'm working with somebody that is insulin dependent, I'm going to pay attention to, to what they're doing in their training. And this is probably not something I would necessarily recommend for them based on my results. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was, it was so substantial in terms of the spike. And right. So if they're doing like what, like a, maybe a higher intensity routine, they might get more um, glucose in their blood and then their, their insulin, they may not, the, the amount of insulin they have to take is would vary right greatly. And might right. Spike. And it's, they're going to have a hard time dosing it. And even they're, you know, if they're wearing an insulin pump, like even, oh, yeah. you know, that would be a little bit better, but those are still delayed a little bit. Yeah. So it still could be problematic for them. I didn't use anybody that was insulin dependent and I didn't have anybody that had diabetes. So right. um, these were normal people. So within about three minutes um, post training, uh, everybody was pretty much back to baseline, but if you have somebody that doesn't have the ability to have that mechanism to bring it back down, that could be, it will stay elevated. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting actually. Yeah. I didn't see uh, a, a real big difference in training volume though. And um, I did three different studies. The first two, they actually drank carbohydrate and I did mm -hmm. concentrations. Um, and I, I really didn't see a difference in training volume. So it really, as, as far as volume they could tolerate or like uh, volume of, of, of actual squats. So, oh, okay. 
Um, like it changed the rep. Uh, rep yeah. Okay. So we, you know, cause the concept, we always talk about how, you know, carbs can fuel workload and, and it probably can because my training protocol was only five sets. So, I mean, the entire training protocol only lasted about 25 minutes. If it was a longer training protocol and we did more stuff, it may have an impact. And that's kind of what the literature shows with mine being such a short time period. It really, we didn't have that outcome. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that carbohydrates don't help training, <laughs> but what it did show, everybody came in fasted. What it did show was that it, and they only came in about twice a week. So if you're, if there's maybe two mornings, cause we get people all the time. They're like, listen, I have to train early and I can't eat before I go train. Is that okay? It's not ideal probably, but what this showed was that, you know, if the training is, is around that time frame, then they can probably still get just as much out of it. Like it's still worth going rather than skipping the training if they're not going to eat before. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So do the mouth uh, rinses, do they work just pre, before you, it's, it's kind of like the, you're saying like the um, ammonia. Um, would that work with any compound? Let's say you're doing deadlifts or something like that. It, it causes some sort of insulin spike. Well, so I didn't do it because of the glucose. Like that was not at all what we were expecting. I did it because there's um, a neurotropic stimulation. So you've got, it'll, it'll start to release, um, uh, it'll basically stimulate CNS. And so you'll, you'll, you know, it, it's kind of like the potentiation. Um, right. And so they've been able to show this in aerobic training um, and cyclists yeah. and things like that in sprints. Um, so that was where I was coming from was like, okay, if we can do this and it will give some excitability, you know, will that, you know, provide any, any aspect to this? Because when, when they use carbohydrate aerobically, yeah. Everybody reports a, a lower perceived exertion. So whatever they're doing feels easier. Right. Uh, even, you know, even if they're at the same weight and, right. you know, I didn't really keep track of that for my study because it's, it's such a soft data point anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't necessarily concerned about that <laughs> um, because I just wanted to see if, it, if they were going to do another rep. I don't care if you feel like hell you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's, right. it's tough because there's like not objectivity there per se, you know, it's right. Like, it's uh, a Likert scale. So it's I like heard, one to 10. How bad did that feel? You know, I heard uh, Scott Stevenson say once he was in a clinical setting and he had this guy and he was just like trying to run him into the ground to get him at like a perceived like pain of, of 10. Yep. And he said, this guy kept running it really low. And I was like destroying him, like throwing everything at him. And then he, he comes to find out after he does the study, he's like talking to the guy and he's like, yeah, when I was like, I don't know, a couple of years back, I was riding BMX and I rode my bike over a fence and landed and impaled my stomach onto the fence and was dangling over the fence for like two hours until someone helped me. And he was like, Oh, that's why your perceived pain is like not your, your, your 10 is that. So this, yeah, right. this, the gym is like a, a six. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. Yeah. So it's based on personal experience. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why he thinks that's a 10. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we'll get into the next question. So uh, I'm actually glad you mentioned that. So we're talking, uh, I, I hear a lot of things uh, back and forth with uh, insulin, spiking your insulin post-workout. Mm -hmm. uh, one question I had was when, when you consume your protein, let's say it's a simple way, uh, it's absorbed. What's the time frame that it's in the bloodstream where should you wait for the protein to kind of give it some time before you spike your insulin with dextrose? Or so it's, it's going to depend on your training, right? And so the... Basically, if we're talking about the anabolic window post-training, 
how long that is and how sensitive your body is is going to depend on how intense your training was and, and mm -hmm. how long you were doing. So everyone's going to be a little bit different, but let's just assume that you were in the gym for a solid 45 minutes and it was pretty intense. I mean, you had a pretty solid hypertrophy training workout. You know, you did 10 to 20 working sets of a pretty major body part. We'll just say legs. Mm -hmm. um, so your anabolic window can last up to four hours. And within that four hours, about the first two hours, your cells are going to take up nutrients independent of insulin. So you don't even need the insulin there. It's going to continue to take in stuff at a higher rate than usual. Right. For that last two hours, you're probably going to be more sensitive to the insulin that then gets released. So um, the way that we approach this is, you know, protein is important. Don't get me wrong. And, and you know, post-training protein has gotten a lot of attention and, and, you know, deservedly so. But if people are getting enough protein throughout the day, that time frame is probably more important to be focusing on the things that you've lost during that training, which is carbohydrate and electrolytes. Um, and, you know, you can make the argument that if you were to take in protein, let's say right after the workout, you go, you either have a meal or you have a shake with carbs and electrolytes and protein. The protein is going to slow down digestion. So it could slow down the amount of time and potentially maybe reduce the amount of carbohydrate that you take in. Mm -hmm. Now, this is all probably really marginal. So um, the bottom line there is that what's the meaningful result? Well, it's going to be a little bit different for everybody. <clears throat> if people really like to get their protein after training, fine. You know, But again, if, if they're eating really consistently throughout the day and they're getting all their protein throughout the day, it's probably not that critical. But they did lose a lot of glycogen. Right. They definitely lost a lot of sodium calcium, you know, all of those things through sweating and, and actual muscle contraction. So that's why we focus on what we focus on. You know, the, the first thing that we want to do is replenish those things. That's the most immediate. Uh, your body also doesn't like to use amino acids for energy. So even when you were training, you know, unless you were fasted and you had fasted for quite a while, that's the, the you know, that's the exception there because then your body will start to use, you know, non-carbohydrate sources and that's usually protein and muscle. Um, but it doesn't like to use amino acids for energy. So it's, it's using stored carbohydrate glycogen for muscle and your liver. Um, and you're just, you're losing a lot more sodium than you probably realize. Yep. So getting those things back in is, is what we really focus on first. Do you think it's, um, by any chance, do you think it's critical that there is some sort of dextrose or insulin spike post-workout? Because I've seen studies where it shows that uh, enough protein actually causes some sort of an insulin reaction. Um, what are your thoughts? And that's, and that's correct because uh, protein is, is glucogenic. So if, right. and that's why a lot of people who are claiming to be on a ketogenic diet, it's questionable uh, because they're taking in so much protein because that can get converted to carbohydrate. Right. Uh, and, and so that's, that's kind of what's going on there. You know, it, anytime you have a quote unquote meal or you're, you're fed, you're going to have an insulin response. Um, you know, the magnitude is going to vary based on the composition of the foods and, and a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. you know, critical to have an insulin spice, spike post-training. You know, if you're, I would say it's, it's not necessarily a critical thing because your, your cells are still taking in the nutrients. Yeah. Um, you know, it, the, the more we're, we're promoting the carbohydrate, not for the insulin spike, but for the replenishment. Replenishing of glycogen. Yeah. 
Yeah, for in, in that most immediate time frame after, you don't even need the insulin to have that happen. And same right. thing while you're training, that's why you know you've got the endurance athletes. When they're taking in carbohydrate, their their cells are able to utilize that without the insulin because you're not when you're training, it's suppressing insulin, so it's not right. you know. Um, so uh, so what is it uh, that that allows that? Is it GLUT four is one of those things that that transports without insulin, right? Uh, so GLUT four is your 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 glucose transporter, one of them. Um, GLUT five is is more associated with fructose, so that's why we start mixing the carbohydrates is because it'll it allows the cell more opportunity to pull in the carbohydrates. And then when you start pairing it with things like sodium, it helps to activate the sodium potassium pump and that can help pull in more. Okay, okay. And that helps pull in more fluid. So carbohydrate, when it enters the cell, it brings three molecules of water too. So carbohydrate and fluid are all related. Same thing with, with sodium, you know? Um, so all of those things in the exchange is, is all related. So the, the point is to get as much carbohydrate in there as possible. And if we're giving, more opportunities for more receptors to engage and pull it in. That's, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, so I worked with, uh, uh, I worked with the mountain dog training for, uh, like yeah, two or three years yeah. prior to doing the vertical diet. And then I worked with Stan and I took the, the intra shake and, and basically did the glucose, fructose, uh, I was doing dextrose and, and, and orange juice and intra workout, but I was still doing the amino acids. So you're saying maybe the amino acids aren't because John uses amino acids. You're saying the amino acids may not be essential during the training window or during that, like, there's not a lot to support it. Um, beyond. Yeah. I, I, yeah it, if you're getting enough protein anyway, there's not really an, an advantage to the amino acids during training. It, it doesn't really seem to, you know, when you look at the full body literature there, you're, you know, if you're going to see a benefit, it's probably more so from the carbohydrate because that will also be protein sparing. So right, right. that kind of, you know, if you, if you like taking them, great. Are they going to hurt you? Absolutely not. Probably, you know, I mean, unless you got some crazy renal thing going on, but um, you know, it, it's not going to bother anybody usually. So you know, you can take it. Is there an advantage? I'd say probably not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think he acknowledges that too, that there's not a lot of uh, uh, literature on it. Um, so I think he, he's aware of that. I don't know. He just says anecdotally, that's how yeah. it feels. But um, I, one other thing that I wanted to, um, so, so when you're using a, a large uh, amount of carbohydrates in this window, bodybuilders who take exogenous insulin around this window, is that like, maybe not necessary uh, if it's like a, like two, 300, 400 grams of carbohydrates. Uh, Cause I've heard of so, people like, good. Yeah. So th this is not medical advice, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. I'm going to clarify the that. The use yeah. of exogenous, you know, substances or whatever, but um, hypothetically in that scenario, you know, it, I would say that that is probably not the time to take it. I would actually wait because you've already got the sensitivity and you're, you're really, it's almost a waste of the, the insulin, you know, if you're, if you're injecting it because you've already got the sensitivity of the cells, I would wait until that four hour plus window and do it then. Okay. Now your, your body has lost the sensitivity. So if you, if you're using your insulin at that point, now you've created another window where you, you've developed a sensitive time frame rather than, you know, that one two to four hour, whatever window, you know, you put all your eggs in that one basket and that extra insulin didn't really do anything because your cells were already hypersensitive. So. Got it. Asking for a friend just to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Cool. Well, that's great. Um, I, I, I kind of use a lot of that information to kind of build my, my workout nutrition. Like, so usually I'll do the, the carb shake. What I was doing was, um, I also would have the meal after I would do bison, rice and honey. Mm -hmm. Um, I would still do that mixture, but then that would be protein. So it would probably be like an hour or two later. Um, but I would do the, 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 the thermo tabs and the dextrose and the fructose all during my training. So, uh, how would you say that as far as like a post-workout or I would do like a low fat, like a chicken with pineapple and rice and whatever. Yeah. Well, you know how we feel about chicken. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know that <laughs> and it's not, it's not bad, but, um, yeah, no, that, that sounds great. The only thing I would, I would caution for people who may be new to this is, you know, you can't just take a whole bunch of sodium all at once. Cause you're going to give yourself osmotic diarrhea and that's just an yeah. awful experience. So, um, you know, whether you drink the post-workout shake during or after it probably really doesn't matter. Um, okay. I, I used to like to drink it during and, you know, lately I just, I haven't cause my training, you know, with everything going on, it's, it's just a little bit yeah. different. So, um, but for me, it was nice in between sets, you know, to get a little sip and I, I would make mine pretty salty. Um, and so I would, I would act, I would dilute some, some orange juice with dextrose and, and sodium into about a liter of water. And I would drink that through my, yeah. so, um, it was great. And anecdotally, I felt great, but it, was it necessary? No, and I'm not competing, so it's not like it gave me any kind of an advantage for anything. Right. Maybe if you're depleted and you're having that around your workout, maybe it'll help. Right. Definitely some either, either during or after. You know, it doesn't necessarily, you know, and, and a lot of people in the general population, they're not even going to need to do that, to be honest with you. You know, they're just, you know, they're probably not training hard enough or often enough. Um, that it's going to be that necessary. If they're getting a solid meal, you know, within that two hour time frame after yeah. they're, they're fine. I agree a hundred percent. And that's kind of like where my training kind of evolves. So like right now I'm kind of training with low repetitions in reserve or high repetitions in reserve and, and my training's not super intense. So I don't actually put that in um, until like yeah. I'm at a large volume and I know there's potentially a need for it or I feel there might be cool. I uh, really appreciate that. So let's go on to the next uh, thing I had here. Um, so this is kind of, uh, to more of like the premise of this podcast, uh, this question, but, uh, I wrote, how does optimal health make us better bodybuilders, uh, slash, um, help us maximize hypertrophy. And then what is potentially wrong with the standard bodybuilding diet, um, that. Yeah, no, that's actually a great question. And it's a, it's a really interesting concept. Cause I mean, you, you've heard Stan and I talk and we always say, you know, if you want to be healthy, don't compete. Um, because at some point those two things are opposing each other. Um, you know, and, and that's for any sport, that's not just bodybuilding or physique athletes, you know, that's, that's literally any sport. Once you get to that pinnacle of, of, of competition, the things that you're doing are not necessarily quote unquote healthy. Um, now how does health play into this? Well, we can try to keep them as healthy as possible. And that's, that's the approach here. So how does that impact bodybuilding? Um, you need to be healthy to be able to perform the things that you, you need to do for training and everything else. And you need to be able to provide your body, the environment to recover from that training. Um, you know, everybody gets really excited about the training and it's really important, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a very small, you know, it's, it's just the stimulus, you know, everything is really happening when you leave the gym. Um, but it's, you know, the stuff when you leave the gym is not that immediate gratification. Like you don't feel exhausted, hopefully from having like a steak, <laughs> you know, or a good meal or, you know, getting enough sleep, you know, you're not going to, 
that that's one that you'll actually feel a little bit different. But I mean, you know, usually if you're just going through the day, getting your meals, you know, you'll, you'll feel pretty good, but it's not the same as just going in and just tearing yourself up. You know, you immediately know that you had a great workout. So um, making sure that you optimize health is what's going to keep you healthy and allow you to continue to train longer. And so there's the longevity thing. Cause as you age, like, you know, <laughs> like me, uh, you start to get, you know, those little aches and pains and things like that. And then you've got to get a little bit more creative with your training and train around it. And, you know, if you suffer an injury, depending on the severity, you know, you're not training at all. Um, and so things just really start to happen. Um, if you don't, you know, prioritize taking care of, of what's going on and giving yourself the recovery period. So, um, I'd say that's the, the biggest thing is that you can't do what you want to do in terms of competition if you're not healthy. So, and then what was your second question? I'm sorry. Oh, um, what's wrong with the, the standard yeah. bodybuilding diet that's still being practiced? So the, the quote unquote standard bodybuilding diet that's gained a lot of popularity, you know, and we see it a lot. I had, unfortunately I see it a lot in like bikini competitors. Uh, that's probably the most extreme. Um, although it happens on the men's side too, but, um, immediately they'll get a coach or a guru and they have them on, you know, chicken breast and broccoli and white fish and they have them eating less than a thousand calories and you know it's all that they'll, they'll remove egg yolks and give them peanut butter and it's it's this you know super ultra clean diet um and and the issue with that is that the food choices there you know while while there are there's no necessarily bad food the combinations now that you've provided them are not the nutrient dense foods that are going to give them any chance of getting all of the nutrients that they need to perform at their best, especially considering that their activity level and stress level is probably far above what most people's uh, stress level is, you know, and along with the bodybuilding diet, they're usually uh, told to, you know, wake up, you know, super early in the morning to do some fasted cardio and then, you know, to do everything they need to do during the day, they end up getting, you know, four to five hours of sleep a night, and, you know, their coach is super happy because they're, they're grinding, you know, and they're, they're just toughing it out and getting through the thing and they feel miserable. So it's working, you know, and I just think that's a terrible approach. <laughs> you know, you, you don't need to suffer per se to, to see a lot of um, advancement. So that's the issue is you're, you're taking people and you're putting them in a caloric deficit and then you're taking the these food items that are just giving them absolutely no chance to even get close to the levels of, of nutrients that they need to perform. And so that's uh, what I'd say would be the biggest issue. Yeah. I would say one of the biggest things the vertical diet kind of taught me was that, um, so I had a coach like that prior and, uh, it's always like work harder. You know, I'd be like losing weight and he'd be like, all right, 20 more minutes of cardio. I'm like, I lost a pound this week. What do you, you know, and, uh, stuff like that where I'm like, this is kind of ridiculous. But, um, one thing that it, it, it has really taught me is that they're like, you want your body working for you. So you don't like the suffering when you're really close to a show is going to, is going to happen regardless, but you shouldn't have to be like, I would be laying in bed trying to go pee and I'd have to like psych myself up. I'm like, right. Come on, Dylan, you're going to get up. Like I just didn't have the energy for it before. <laughs> and so I'm like, I don't know if this, this kind of suffering is, is productive towards my end goal. And I, I started to realize that like I'll suffer in the gym all day. I'll grind myself into the ground. If, it, if that's what it takes, um, which I'm learning that maybe it not might not be the case always, especially after having a Dr. Mike on. Um, but, and there's, there, I, th I feel like there are times to work really hard and to suffer, but then there are also times to pull back. 
And I think that's a really big thing that this has taught me is because like, I feel pretty good. So I'm able to perform better and I'm able to, when I need to call on that, that ability to suffer quote unquote, or go really hard, I have it there versus I'm just, just come trying to pull energy from nowhere while I'm eating, you know, no fat and I have no, barely any sleep. And I already did an hour cardio and I have to train. Um, I think that's something that it's really taught me is, is I was kind of instilled in this mindset. I always have to be working harder and, and suffering. And it's like, well, maybe there are times to be able to do that. And this structure of having those micronutrient micronutrients in has allowed me to be able to call on that and, and use it productively. Yeah. You got to work smarter, not necessarily just harder, you know? And yeah, exactly. You, you bring up a good point because the periodization thing, you know, we're really good about periodizing our training. Most people, <laughs> you know, or, or you should be. And if, if you aren't, you, you might want to revisit that, but you need to do that with your diet too. And, and we, we talk about that a lot, you know, the same way that you would take a deload week for your training, you probably, you know, every, you know, four to six weeks might need to do the same thing with your diet, depending on the person, you know, I mean, some people, it, it may be a little bit longer window, but, and that's the other thing is that people get this misconception that, and the same thing happens with the standard bodybuilding diet. You get these coaches that are making changes on almost a daily basis. And yeah. you know, I understand when, when you get close to the show, like show day, you're going to make some changes that will be visible. Right. But I hate peak week. I, I absolutely hate it. I've always hated it. I always say, if you need to peak, you're probably not ready. Um, because usually when people screw it up and the biggest challenge is getting people out of their own way. You know, if, if you can just have them be consistent on something and, and not mess with it very much and changing a diet, like, you know, daily, especially is, is way too often. You got to give the body at least, it usually takes about two weeks for it to really kind of get into a, a, the new rhythm and adjust and respond to the way that you're now, now feeding it. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm pretty open with any of the clients that I take on. Like, look, we're not going to make, you know, I'm not going to give you some new diet next week or tomorrow. Like you're going to do this for a minute and we're going to follow what you're doing. And then we're going to adjust it according to what's going on, you know, and we're going to take some objective measurements to see what's actually happening so that we're addressing the actual things that we need to address. We're not just, you know, blindly throwing darts at the dartboard. So um, I don't, a great question. I think that's a great topic. We could do a whole day on that. Dude, I, I, I wrote so many questions for you. I just like, I have like, probably, I was like, all right, what's the best I can get out of this? Uh, I'm we'll like, thinking of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Stuff, I'm, I'm, that'd be awesome. I'm like, I was like I'm driving to work. I'm like, Siri, can you take a note? And I was like, <laughs> talking about, um, uh, that, that's, oh, and, and just one more thing on that. I think that's really smart as, as far as like, I feel like sometimes coaches, one, feel this obligation to constantly change things because it's going to elicit some magical result. And then also you have expectations from the client who thinks, oh, ch he's changing stuff every week. Stuff's definitely happening where it's like realistically he's doing something. Yeah. Yeah. We're realistically like some, you can write, I've, I've had uh, times where I rode the same diet out for four weeks and I'm still getting great results. Why change it? Why, Why change it if it's more? working? Yeah. Yeah. Get more <laughs> metabolic adaptation, have to eat less, maybe look more uh, flat. Like it doesn't make any sense. So right. yeah, that's, I think uh, making those expectations, especially if it's a coach client relationship, you know, setting that standard, like, Hey, listen, you know, like, like I have a client right now where, where um, he lost a lot of weight, but I'm like, okay, now we need to kind of slow that down because we can't do this linearly for a long time. Let's do a maintenance phase for a couple of weeks, get you back at baseline. And then we'll, you know, we can't go down for a year straight. Right. So you got <laughs> to tell them, you know, because they're, that's what they expect is they want to, you know, continue to make progress. And that's one step back for two forward, if that makes sense. Yep. Definitely. Cool. Um, and then, so the next question I had uh, was, 
the importance of uh, micronutrition in a diet for maximizing hypertrophy. Um, and I think you already touched on that, just maybe briefly um, yeah. more specifically. In a nutshell, so for, for those out there, so you, you fuel your body with your, your, everything you're taking in, okay? And so you give your body energy through macronutrients. Macronutrients are the only things that are giving your body energy because they are the things that contain calories. Micronutrients don't contain calories, therefore they don't give your body energy. However, what micronutrients do is allow your body to use the energy and nutrients from the macros to actually convert it into usable energy by the body. So they're cofactors and coenzymes. So they're still extremely important because they're basically the lock and key that allows those macros to do what they need to do in the body. Makes sense. Um, yeah. So I guess we'll switch. Do you have anything else on that, Dylan? I was just going to say, um, I have one more question here too on, on that, on kind of that piggybacking off that. But um, yeah, I was just going to say, I think a lot of uh, bodybuilders tend to have these diets that are just, like you said, chicken, rice, and they don't really think about that. So um, these, these coenzymes, all these things help to, like I, I heard matter. you talking about, yeah, yeah. right. And <laughs> I, I heard you talk about that, like injecting B12 isn't going to create energy, but it helps your body utilize maybe your, your macronutrient intake better. Is that... If, if you got somebody that's B12 deficient, okay, like okay. injections may be necessary at some point, but for most people, they can get the B12 they need if they just incorporate the right amount of foods in their diet. Um, you know, you're going to have the exceptions. You're going to have people who are extremely, you know, like very plant-based, which is totally fine. You know, they may have to supplement a little bit here and there, but there's, there's not really any evidence out there to suggest that taking, you know, 100,000% of your daily B12 is really going to help you. Um, and there's some evidence to suggest that that could be detrimental, <laughs> you know? So um, the, these, you know, massive doses of things like that, you know, and the, the shots. The other thing that people don't realize is that, you know, B12, the shot is a pre-activated form, okay? And so B12 gets activated in the, the stomach with intrinsic factors. So part of the process is actually eating it and, and letting it go through the body. Because I've seen some products out there there was a product, it was like an inhalant B12. And I'm like, why? You know, it's not passing through your stomach. It's not getting activated. Like I just, you know, in they, I don't believe it was a pre-activated form. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's just, there's a lot of misunderstanding around because a lot of terms just end up getting used misappropriately in marketing. And so it catches on and then it just, you know, gains traction. And so they're, they're, there it goes. So, you know, I'm not saying that supplements or, or you know, vitamin injections like that are, are never needed, but for most people, they can probably get what they need from food. So you're saying my ultra micronized alkalinized creatine doesn't work. It might, but you're probably already saturated with the amount of red meat that you're eating. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good to know. <laughs> um, importance of obtaining micronutrition from foods versus a multivitamin. Uh, that kind of feedbacks on that. That is a great question. So when it comes down to nutrients or anything, right? Everything is a chemical. So in order for it to be, let's say B12, it's, it's going to be the exact same chemical compound, whether you took it in a supplement or food. The interesting thing, and there's a lot of data to support this, is that our bodies seem to assimilate the nutrients from food a little bit better because you've got the combination of the other nutrients that are in the foods and the trace nutrients. Um, the meat factor in, in the literature, um, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't absorb well from supplements. The, I would say the drawback with supplements compared to food 
is that with the supplements, you're only getting what they decided to put in that bottle. You know, whereas if you're eating a steak or, or something of that nature, you're going to get all the other stuff in there. So if you take a B12 supplement, you're only getting that B12. If you eat a steak, you're getting the B12, you're getting the iron, you're getting the choline, you're getting the zinc, you're getting all, that, all that stuff that's in there that you aren't getting from that B12. So, you know, I'm not necessarily against supplements. I think there's a time and a place. Um, but I think a lot of people turn to that first yeah. rather than correcting their, their nutrition and then using supplements as a supplement. You know what I mean? So um, I think if a lot of people would just pay attention and, and take a little bit more time to prioritize the food choices that they're making, they'd probably realize that they're probably wasting a lot of money on that supplements and that could go to more towards quality food that they may even be able to assimilate a little bit better. Right. And I think something that I pay attention to, as you said, maybe a small difference. And I would like to say that for myself, I'm chasing optimality and I'm chasing that small difference because uh, the more muscle I acquire, the harder it is to put on muscle. And I, I look for these small differences in, so I'm looking at, I mean, I understand for maybe gen pop, maybe sometimes uh, that might not be their first priority. Um, but I also focus on the idea that, that sometimes these small differences are actually monumental when putting on an extra pound or two of muscle mass. But I like what you said there too, is that people will buy a multivitamin and buy creatine powder before they even look at their diet. And a lot of the time, or honestly, sometimes people will look at taking uh, enhancements before they even fix their diet, which is like just crazy to me. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's like uh, one, you could be saving a ton of money uh, two, you may not even may not even need some of those things. You you haven't observed a need for them in the first place. Um, it, you know, you just kind of just throw the kitchen sink at it with with you know. I mean, my buddy works at a supplement shop, and he'll come in and be like, "Yeah, dude, this guy spent," and he's kind of like me, like, "Yeah, he spent eight hundred dollars on products," and I'm like, eight hundred dollars. Like, what do you even you know do with all that? So, um, yeah, I think that's it's pretty crazy. But um, yeah, I, I like that 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 point you made there. Uh, I had a quick question on that. I wanted to ask, what uh, do you think that in the standard diet, there's any vitamins that are probably lacking? Maybe you don't get the full amount. And well, if uh, we're talking about the standard American diet, yeah, let's <laughs> say two thousand. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. Might. There's a lot of talk out there about like depletion of nutrients in soil, and you know how that affects our food supply. Right now, there's not enough evidence to suggest that we can't get more than enough nutrients from food, even, even with all those things happening. Right. And, and even I, I will say, you know, I worked in the agriculture sector for a minute, you know, with industry and it, there's a lot going on in terms of regenerative agriculture. And, you know, I, I give farmers or ranchers all the credit in the world. I mean, those people just science the hell out of everything and everything they do is data driven. And I mean, they are some of the most efficient people on this planet when it comes to producing, you know, a, a safe and, and nutrient food supply. I mean, I, I just, I can't say enough about them um, from all areas. <laughs> I mean, people don't understand what goes into that. And, and these guys are rock stars in my mind. Um, so in terms of like, just in general, I think people more so run into deficiencies because of the way that they're building their diet. Um, mm -hmm or what they're just allowing themselves to get away with in terms of their eating. You know, people are habitual, they'll get in these, these you know, uh, regimens, which is totally fine, but you know, if you're, if you're just allowing yourself to treat yourself poorly, you know, like, like Dylan said earlier, you know, you're gonna have some issues. And especially in the competitive physique world, 
you know, if you're already eating a deficit and, and this, I go back to the bikini thing example, because they, they usually eat so few calories, like yeah. good luck trying to get the nutrients you need at that calorie intake anyway, you know? So you need to be just on top of the food choices that you're making to get the most nutrients out of those. Cause you need the biggest return on investment. You know, if you've got somebody like, like Thor or, or, you know, one of those guys who's eating, you know, 10,000 plus calories a day, yeah, he's still got a huge nutrient need, but getting him the nutrients is going to be an easier task in terms of, because they're taking in so much food, we can probably right. add that stuff in there versus it's, you know, the, the bikini competitor who's eating 1800 calories, you know, and training, you know, once or twice a day, man, that's a big ask, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's a, the, the macros argument. I mean, like someone like Thor could probably have a Snickers bar, but you have, you, you have a bikini competitor eat a Snickers bar and there goes half of her calories for the day. Yeah. I mean, not, not that I would say those are optimal in, in the first place, but I think people who are in that crowd sometimes are like, Oh, well, I'm gonna have a Snickers bar. And it's like, you just, you could have had a potato, you could have got some potassium and you know, uh, you could have uh, had a steak, which, you know, your B12, your iron, all that stuff. So it's, it, that's, especially when you're that low in calories. I would say that that's probably, you know, Dylan's point right there. Potassium is probably the most, uh, one of the most overlooked nutrients. Um, you know, I always tell people, you know, even the, the people that I work with, not, not very many people track their meals to begin with, <laughs> but the people that are good about it initially and come in, I'm like, cool. Well, you know, do you track your, your calories? They're like, yeah. And I track my macros and they're like, yeah, I track my sodium. I'm like, well, have you ever tracked potassium? And they're like, no. And I'm like, do that for a day, see where you end up. And usually they're less than half of what they would probably get. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, try to, to get this much potassium and the foods that you have to eat to do that. It really just takes you down that funnel of the foods that you should probably be eating. Anyway. Yeah. Now you have a, now your menu is a little bit more uh, narrowed down because of that. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So then yeah, we'll get to the, the next question for protein sources. I hear this a lot. A lot of people are kind of talking about protein sources, meat, red meat versus a chicken versus a turkey. Is red meat bad for us? So that's another great question because the, the whole concept is, is X food bad? Uh, is the answer is always going to be, it depends. Because, mm -hmm. And my short answer for, for red meat is no, it's not bad. Um, but just to give an example, I always use water. Okay. So yeah. is water bad for you? Everybody's going to be like, Oh no. Well, it depends because if you drink too much right now, it sure as hell is because you'll die, you know? Right. So yeah. everything is dose dependent and it, it's, nutrition across the board is, is very uh, conceptual. So it's very based on, you know, what is going on in that moment. It's based on, you know, wh where you're at, you know, like what time of day is it? What have you had to eat so far? What do you have left for the day? What are you going to be doing? What activity are you fueling? Uh, how, do you, how does this affect your digestion? Um, are you allergic to this? You know, do you have any, you know, do you like this food? <laughs> yeah hate this food and you hate the way it tastes, you're not going to eat it every day. So then you're, you know, that throws it out the window too. So for red meat, it's, it, I say it's a delicious multivitamin. It's, it's honestly one of the most nutrient dense things you can eat. Yeah. And that's why we've, we've made it the forefront of the vertical diet, you know, and we're big on whole eggs too, because, you know, eggs are, are essentially the gold standard in terms of protein for digestion absorption. Right. Uh, but red meat in particular, it just, it's, it's so easy to pick on red meat with all the activist groups out there and all the things they say about it. Yeah. Uh, and all of that is extremely inaccurate. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. know, 
I've seen the entire life cycle of, of beef, you know, um, yes, we sacrifice an animal at the end of it to consume it, you know, uh, and it, it, it's, it's a shame that we're taking a life, but we need to make sure we maximize it. And so that's why they try to get nose to tail and, and make sure that they use every single portion of it they can for, for, you know, very useful things. The thing about the ruminant animals in terms of, of beef and, and bison is with their stomach profile, because they're ruminants, they're able to what we call upcycle protein. So they can eat things that we can't as humans because they're able to break down cellulose and we can't. So cellulose is a plant cell wall. So you can literally feed a cow a whole corn stalk. You know, if we were eating an ear of corn, we eat the corn and we got that whole stalk left over. They can eat that whole damn thing. And they'll be able to turn that into tissue that we can consume that is now extremely nutrient dense and good for us. So, um, you know, that's one of the reasons we domesticated them in the, in the first place. Now, you know, the, the argument against it in terms of the animal the animal cruelty thing, they do everything in their power to reduce that as much as possible. You know, like anything else, you know, there's, there's bad people in every sector, but in, in terms of ranchers as a whole, that is not something that's a common practice. Um, and anything that happens, they, they really have very little tolerance for it and they, they address it. Same thing in dairy. Um, yeah. You know, for, for the people that are just, you know, they don't want to consume an animal, that's totally fine. People can still probably do fine on a plant-based diet. And we have people who are vegan and vegetarian that follow vertical protocols. You know, yeah. we, we use different proteins with them. Um, but for those people who are, yeah, you know, I'll eat whatever you tell me to eat as long as it is the best thing that I can take in, in terms of nutrient profile, digestion, absorption, and optimizing health, I would say that red meat is one of the best things that you can take in. And then yeah. we recommend, you know, two servings of salmon a week uh, just for the EPA and DHA. That seems to be more than enough for folks. You know, if they want to do it more often, that's fine too. Um, but we really build the diet around beef and eggs. So, yeah. well, red meat and eggs, I should say. Right, right. Can you uh, name some of the benefits that some like bison or like a red meat has over something like a chicken protein? Uh, I know chicken doesn't really contain creatine or anything like that, but. Right. So that's one of them. So red meat's going to have a lot more creatine. It's going to have a lot more zinc. It's going to have a lot more uh, B12. Um, it's basically got, you know, nine essential amino acids or nine essential nutrients that we don't produce on our own that you can get from the, from the beef. Yeah. Um, also got a little dietary cholesterol, which is actually a good thing. Right. Uh, the fat that you find in lean red meats, uh, whether it be bison or, or beef is, uh, the majority is from monounsaturated fats, which is the you know, quote unquote healthy fats, uh, which is a, a big misconception. You know, we've come a long way in terms of producing red meat. Um, and that's why, you know, it comes back to the science. You know, they have PhD animal nutritionists come up with the feed to, to give these animals based on their genetic profile to optimize the end product. I mean, it's insane. The, yeah. the same steak today from where it was, you know, 30 years ago is about 30% leaner. I mean, that's amazing, you know, it, yeah. it's all based on, you know, genetic breeding and, and feed, you know, we, we've realized what certain things we can do to really optimize that. And it's just, it's amazing. So you're yeah. just going to get that kind of stuff from, from chicken or white fish it just doesn't have the same nutrient profile. It doesn't have as many in there. You can get really quality protein, like, don't right. you know, chicken, all that stuff great for, for getting protein, but you're just not going to get those other trace nutrients because it, they're, they're a monogastric animal and their, their lifespan is a little bit different and it's just not the same production of, of an end product. It's, now, it's just great. out of curiosity, 
does chicken com- contain the same amino acid profile as like a meat? Does it have uh, the complete amino acid spectrum with the nine? It's, it's a complete protein. Um, the, the actual like individual amino acids are going to vary a little bit, but it is a complete protein. So the, the way to approach that is that any animal source is a complete protein with, with plant-based soy, depending on how it's made. Okay. Cause once it goes through the processing, you know, depending on the product, they can yeah. strip some of that out of there. Uh, quinoa is a complete protein. Um, but that, that pretty much covers the list. I mean, most everything else you're going to have to, to pair right. most yeah. plant proteins are, are incomplete. The other thing for me with, with the plant proteins, and again, you know, if people want to be plant-based as long as they're diligent about it, they can get what they need. Right. A big drawback for me is that most plant proteins, because of that cellulose, the digestion absorption and the bioavailability of the nutrients is so much lower than it is from an animal source. That's why, you know, if it comes, if it's somebody that's like, listen, I, I don't care if I'll eat animal products, I'm always going to promote those first because of the digestibility and absorption. Gotcha. It's uh, interesting because I see a lot of people use that. Um, I think it's biological protein scale. Yeah. I think, I think where it's like, we have like whey and all these other things above, but that list doesn't account for actual micronutrition at all. Right. Um, and right. and bio, I think it does account for bioavailability. I can't remember. What yeah. It that's what it's, it's supposedly scoring. And there's still, you know, there's some, some holes in what we have. Yeah. Now. I just I see a lot of people reference that and I'm like well I you know like a whey protein is probably good but like what uh, maybe its impact on performance is different um, than a steak and the steak is yeah, below that on that list right the, the scale every scale we have whether you're talking about the the PDSAA I think it is now um, and I probably said that wrong but it's the protein digestive digestibility uh, and availability score I think is, is what it is um, that's probably the best that we have right now in terms of that, but it, it's still not perfect. Neither is the glycemic index, neither is the satiety index. Like no, nothing that we have is, is perfect and there's drawbacks, but what that bioavailability scale is, is essentially measuring, you're right, is the, they'll, you know, radioactively isolate a, an amino acid to see if how, how well it was absorbed. And so based on that, that's what they're, they're looking at. Um, and it's, it's good but it's not, it doesn't tell the whole story like you were talking about, Dylan. It's not, you know, taking into account the, the other minerals and, and nutrients that are in that food and the big picture. It's just looking at the protein digestion and absorption rate. So, yeah, that's just a flaw that I think I, I, I personally observed from that because I was looking at it and I'm like, everybody always says like, I think egg whites is like way up on that list too. Um, Eggs are considered the gold standard. Yeah. 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 Well, eggs, eggs are good. actually the it's the whole egg because there's actually the there's a higher concentration of protein in a yolk. There's just more volume of egg white. So yeah, but it's there's a higher concentration of protein in the yolk. So yeah, I just want to pull it up real quick. Matt, you had a, a question on eggs, huh? Yeah, actually, I did because uh, it's funny. Actually, uh, when shopping yesterday, my buddy he was actually into the gym too. He's grabbing these egg whites and. Told him not to. I wanted you to. Oh, can good. you, go you just smack off? him out of his hand? Yeah. So I'm like, no. So uh, can we go into some of the nutritional value of the egg and then the egg yolk itself with it being the cholesterol? Yeah. So eggs are are just they're they're amazing in terms of nutrients. Um, you know, it's like we said, it's the gold standard for protein. Uh, the egg yolk in particular, you know, it's got the dietary cholesterol, which we we now know is. You know, probably nothing to really be scared of, um, especially from eggs. There's been a lot of research on egg consumption and, 
you know, they've, they've fed people a lot of whole eggs a day and it doesn't affect their dietary or their, um, you know, blood cholesterol levels. Um, we know that it can help with strength independent of hypertrophy. Uh, but the other thing is it's also got choline, which is really, you know, essential for liver health. Um, you can overdo it on choline. So there is kind of a sweet spot for all these nutrients, but you know, a big part of that, if people are just, you know, having what we would recommend for egg consumption on a regular basis, they're going to, you know, get a lot of the, the choline from that. There's biotin in there, which is, you know, really good for hair, skin and nails and, and energy production. So um, it's just an overall really great thing. There are people that do have an allergy. Um, so for those people, obviously they're, they're going to avoid it. Um, I definitely would not recommend eating eggs raw. There's this, you know, concept that when you're cooking it, it's denaturing the protein. And yeah, that happens. That's why coagulation exists, but you're, you're talking about a marginal difference and the risk of, you know, getting salmonella from the <laughs> raw egg is so high that, you know, if you get that now you're not training. So what, you know, what advantage did you have? So I, I would highly caution against the raw egg consumption. Are you like, saying that Rocky Balboa was wrong? Yes. That's, that's where I, that's where I drive all of my nutrition information is that. Movie. <laughs> yeah. That's a solid data point right there. <laughs> yeah. I'm lifting logs upstairs and drinking raw eggs. <laughs> I hear also with the raw eggs, the, the absorption of the protein is, is kind of lower than it is whether if they were cooked, is that somewhat accurate? Yeah. And you've got the avidin in there that'll reduce the absorption of other nutrients. So um, it's, it's just problematic. I mean, yeah. it's all around, it's just, it's pretty problematic. I don't, you know, I don't know necessarily if the raw eggs are going to reduce the protein absorption, but the avenue will definitely reduce the absorption. Of other things, so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here, I wanted to screen share that. What, what were you saying, Matt? No, go ahead and bring up your screen and then I'll. I'll yeah. I wanted to just, I just wanted to show the food scale. So this is what it kind of just, uh, I don't know, was interesting to me when I was looking at, it. I think I was doing a video. Um, so you do have whole eggs up here, but you have a whey protein isolate up here. Um, as far as, uh, I don't know, what is it? Biological value measurement determined percentage of the given nutrient source utilized by the body. So you have a lean beef way down here. But like I said, I think it's just only measuring one value. And it's like, well, there's a lot of nutrition in here versus an egg white, which is up here. Right. And so I'm thinking like, this is a very narrow way of looking at it because I feel like, yeah, you could meet your macronutrient requirements, but um, I just think like even a cow's milk, uh, is just, yeah. it's kind of low for something like that on that, well, on that specific I, scale. You know, you can pull up 10 scales and these scores are going to be a little bit different on each one. Yeah. Scales. Yeah. I've seen other scales where the lean beef is a 92. So, you know, it really just depends on who's doing the test and, and what right, they, right. At. and you know, it, it's going to vary a little bit, but it's, it's still such a high quality item. You know, right. Right. I just, I just think a lot of point people is, is excellent that. that people shouldn't just be worried about the protein. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I just have seen people um, reference that, especially like selling products and things like that. Oh, well, look, whey protein's here at the top, and I'm like, yeah, but you know, what, it doesn't have a lot of those those good. You know, that's eighty percent of milk. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, question I wanted to throw in with the eggs too. The egg yolk itself, uh, with it being cholesterol kind of heavy, does it does it impact hormones? Does it kind of regulate hormone? I know the cholesterol and eggs kind of act as a sterile, I want to say, but I could be wrong. Yeah. So cholesterol is the precursor to testosterone and all the other steroid hormones. So your, your estrogen and anything like that. So can it affect your, your hormone level? Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, and you know, you'll get the people that'll freak out like, Oh my God, you know, like if I'm a woman, I shouldn't be doing it. Well, 
no, it's going to, it's going to help you optimize and balance your hormone levels. Cause they're all based on a feedback loop and they're all, those are more reactive um, than anything. So helping you get that, that cholesterol in there is, is really going to help. So, yeah. Um, sorry, we'll try to move through these last couple and try to get you out of here. Um, so oh, I, fine. I had, um, these are a couple of actual, my personal, um, experiences with blood work. Um, but I'm just curious the blood and I've also seen people quote, um, like just their lipid panel as like, you know, uh, like a really, they put a lot of weight in it as far as their cardiovascular health. And I feel like there's a bigger picture going on. And I feel like I've, I've read that, uh, in, even in the vertical diet. So I'm just kind of curious, um, what is the effect of blood lipids? Um, and then I also myself, um, it, and I don't want to use this as medical advice, but I use exogenous hormones. And um, I've always had problems with my HDL uh, from that. Uh, is there a, uh, an intervention that may be good for myself? So let's just get the last question first. A lot of the, the exogenous compounds will suppress HDL. And, you know, you can, you can do the things that we're going to talk about for gen pop who, who are not enhanced to, to try to increase it. But the, the compounds are probably going to be too powerful. They're probably just going to. Continue. Yeah, so there's probably not a lot you're going to overcome if you're taking those exogenous compounds. Right. Yeah, I've, I kind of become a hypochondriac, but then it's like, like you said, it's like optimal health isn't competing. And so right. sometimes I'm like, <laughs> I just want a perfect panel. And it's like, I'm going to have to sacrifice some things, I think. And uh, yep. yeah, I got <laughs> to realize that sometimes. So for, for lipid panel, I mean, there's a lot of criteria. And there's just a lot of components to a total lipid panel, right? You've got your your HDLs, your, your high-density lipoproteins, your LDLs, your low-density lipoproteins. You've got your VLDLs, your very low-density <laughs> lipoproteins. You've got your triglycerides. I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes into this. And so it's a really complex thing. And to say that somebody is just cardiovascularly um, uh, just – you know, at high risk, just based on an LDL score, just doesn't tell the whole story. You know, could they be at high risk? Absolutely. Using that one, one data point is probably not appropriate. And I, I think that most people in the medical community would absolutely agree with me on this. I mean, you got to look at everything else. And this is where metabolic syndrome is, is a really good example to use because you can have somebody who's borderline high on several factors, you know, such as hypertension, they could have, you know, where they're, they're just a little bit high on that. They could be just a little bit low on their HDLs and they could be just a little bit high on their triglycerides and they could be at a higher risk for a cardiovascular event than somebody that is only high in their, their LDLs. So trying to quantify that risk is a, is a huge challenge. And I don't think we're at that point with our technology to be able to do it very well. We, you know, right as a medical community. And so um, I think looking at, at the whole picture, you know, your, your body weight you, and especially your waist circumference, that seems to be a huge, huge um, teller of your overall risk for a lot of things is your, is your waist circumference. Um, and, and, and a lot of the other, what's your hyper, what's your blood pressure at? What are, what are your um, triglycerides at? You know, like all of these other things. And, and then what are, what's, what's your platelet count? You know, like what's, what's your ferritin level? What's your red blood cell count? Like there's all these other things that are going to go into establishing a risk factor for cardiovascular disease that 
it can't just be, oh, I've got high HDLs or high LDLs. I'm, I'm, I'm at super high risk. Well, what's the rest of your, your blood panel look like? So, right. so it's a comprehensive thing. Now, what can people do to, to increase their HDLs? Number one thing for general population is achieve an appropriate body. Okay. If you, and, and reduce your waist circumference. If your waist circumference is high and you're carrying a lot of central adiposity, get rid of that shit. Okay. That's working against you. Um, and, and that will be a huge thing on getting you to that point. And how do you do that? Well, you're going to be active. And so physical activity is another component of this. And especially resistance training will help to increase those HDLs. Um, the other thing is that taking in the appropriate nutrients. So, uh, you know, getting the appropriate amount of, especially the monounsaturated fats seems to be something that can help. Um, and so, Again, that's the, the primary source of fat from red meat. So if you're using lean red meats, that's another reason why we include it in the diet is that it's going to also help with that. And then the other nutrients in there, the zinc and the magnesium, um, those are also going to help with these things. Um, and then keeping your, your thyroid healthy. A lot of people don't realize there's that, that can play a role in all this too. So making sure that your thyroid's optimized. Um, all of those things. Now, just... People are like, oh, I need to raise my HDLs, and they think it's like this really easy thing to do, and it's 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 not. It's a challenge, um, and you'll get people that'll talk about you know supplementing niacin or things like that. There is some data to show that that might be helpful, but it, there's also data to show that it there may be non-responders. So um, I wouldn't go to a supplement first. I would do those other things, <laughs> you know, that are challenging. Get to appropriate body weight, you know, eat right, and and start training. You know, th those are going to be the most important. Right. I would say anecdotally, the biggest impact was getting my, my body fat percentage down because I, uh, you know, uh, I'm a bo bodybuilder. So body weight is somewhat high and, and that's kind of sometimes not negotiable. I mean, I will drop it occasionally, but like having the actual amount of muscle mass, having my body weight high is, is, is unfortunately just where it has to be at the time. Um, but I would say getting the body fat actually down has improved my HDL. And I'm experimenting with a couple other things, and I want to see if maybe they have some effect because I have done literally all those other things that you said. And, and like I said, and like you said, it's 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 never going to be perfect. Um, but you know, I still want to get them and, and improve them over time. And so I'm kind of monitoring the blood work and whatnot. But yeah, that, that's yeah. And, and HDLs, it, it seems to be a little bit tougher because women need to get them a little bit higher, and it seems to be a, a more uphill battle for them. And, and you're absolutely right. It's not just body weight. It's more body composition. And that, that comes back to the central adiposity for most people. Like if you're carrying some weight in your midsection, your body composition is not optimal. Um, so trying to get that to a good point. And that doesn't mean you need to be like, you know, sub 8% body fat, but get it down to a you know healthy level, low teens you know, yeah. for men. Um, and probably, you know, low to mid 20s for women is, is appropriate. So. Um. Also, so I was going to ask, I, I have a lot of people um, that I, that I help out. Uh, maybe if I'm not even coaching them, I just kind of give them um, some advice. And, and one of the things I always tell them is to try to avoid vegetable oils when they can. Um, what, what is the um, like effects on health for things like PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids, vegetable oils, uh, processed vegetable oils, and um, maybe it might be a good idea. Why isn't it maybe a good idea to avoid them? Uh, if you can. So <laughs> based on the literature, there's not a lot of data to suggest that they are as harmful as a lot of people suggest. With that being said, um, 
I don't know if we've done a good job as a scientific community of evaluating them completely yet. I don't know if we have the whole story. Um, for a lot of people, they, they may just be consuming too much of them and they may be consuming too much omega-6 and that could be throwing off their body's balance of omega-6 to omega-3. And when that happens, those people can't necessarily just supplement omega-3 to, to balance that back out. They actually have to reduce their omega-6 intake. And, you know, from a, from a health perspective, I mean, you can, there's, there's some pretty solid data to show that you can still consume them and it, it may not be an issue for health. Um, they just, they, they could be more inflammatory than some of the other things like that we recommend um, in the diet. So I, I know this is a super soft answer for you. No, I, I understand. <laughs> but from a, from a science, I know Stan goes hard on the, on the processed vegetable oils and it's, for me, it's based on the science there, there, I can't be like, Oh my gosh, the literature totally shows. Cause it doesn't, I mean, right. the, the data doesn't show that you should just completely avoid it, but we just, we think it's probably a better approach not to include it. Um, right. You know, we're using the evidence that we currently have to maybe say, Oh, this might not be the best idea uh, right. or, but I, I think, I think in a typical Western diet, you get, uh, you don't get a, a good omega six to three ratio. You get you a know, lot of omega six consumption. So that's why I may just say like err on the side of caution, try to avoid them if you can and try to get in more uh, wild fish if you can as well. Um, yeah. and, and to kind of maybe fix that ratio a little bit. That's where I, yeah, I, cause I, yeah. you don't want to go around fear mongering and, and, and inherently most, you know, most foods aren't inherently bad for you, uh, per right. se, and maybe dose dependent and things like that. So. Yeah, I'm I'm not a big fan of processed vegetable oils. I understand the use of them because they're, you know, in terms of a food supply, you know, they're extremely efficient and cheap and they're in everything. And that's part of the reason why, um, yeah. you know, I, I don't know if that's caused, you know, a lot of the <laughs> major health problems of our right, right. society, like some people try to say, but um, yeah. Correlation. Here on the side of caution, like I said, you know, it's, it's probably something that if you can reduce that intake and, and, you know, focus your attention somewhere else, it might be more optimal. You know, do I have any data to show that? Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's our anecdotal approach. Hey, you know what? I'd rather cook my food in some butter than some canola oil. So same here. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think. I just want to throw one thing in there with the, I, I, I've had people recommend to me that um, my iron's also high, normal stuff that someone who uses exogenous hormones would be. Um, and I'd like to get them better, but uh, someone recommended to, to lower my red meat consumption. And uh, I'm a little cautious of doing that. Uh, are there other things I could potentially do to get that down? Uh, I know donating might help that, but. Yeah. So donating blood. So this is where a lot of people don't necessarily evaluate all of the things in their blood that they should before they go donate. And especially, you know, with women, they, they menstruate. So they ha kind of have a built in, you know, thing that takes care of this form for men. Right, right. You know, the only way we can do this is to go donate. Um, and when you go donate, they, they test your, your red blood cell count. And that's essentially what they're basing everything on. And for those people who are using exogenous compounds, their, their red blood cell count is usually at the top or sometimes too high to even donate. That doesn't yeah. tell story uh, because you can have a high red blood cell count, but your ferritin, your iron could actually be pretty low. So if you donate at that point, you're going to feel like you got hit by a truck and you're going to be right. right. So going to get in a, a panel, like an iron panel um, would probably be the best thing to, to really evaluate that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of physicians that will talk about that, but um, 
in terms of reducing iron, I mean, I, I worked with people that it, your, the preparation of your food can matter. You know, if you're cooking all your steaks in a cast iron skillet, that can shoot your iron up pretty high because the yeah. iron get in there. Um, you know, reducing red red or red meat consumption, it, it only if if it's necessary, right? I mean, you'd have to look at the whole panel. You know, it, do, do you really need to reduce your red blood or your red meat consumption because your your whole panel is showing that, or is it just red blood cell count because of the compounds and you know, some of the red meat here and there. And, and is that an issue? You know, I guess that's where, you know, you kind of got to step back and take a full evaluation of, well, am I really at a point where it, it is truly a problem? I've exhausted the other um, maybe potential. Uh, right. Places. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you're going to donate, donate. I mean, that's, you know, they, yeah. the blood banks always need, you know, good blood. So um, that's an option. Otherwise, you know, just, just evaluating the situation and really, taking a look at is this something that is truly an issue right um i i i guess uh, so i i got deferred because my iron's high so i'm taking ip6 to maybe if i can get accepted i've done that before um but ggt and ferritin are in range but a long time ago stan sent me a video where this uh, the couple gentlemen were talking about maybe the ranges are a little too high in the united states for ggt and ferritin so i was a little concerned about that personally uh, having all of those markers high so i was thinking donating maybe taking ip6 um and then uh, then I think my last exhaustible resource would just take out, maybe take out a red meat meal and switch it for a fish every day. But that's what I'm thinking my approach is for that. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could try to have your red meat with some calcium sources cause that'll block some of the iron uptake. Um, okay. so if you're having red meat, you know, have some yogurt or milk with it. Um, could I, could I maybe take my daily yogurt meal and split it like, and would that help with the frequency maybe, um, having a little bit of the yogurt yeah. with every meal? Yeah, any calcium in the bloodstream with the red meat will reduce the calcium or the iron absorption. So, I should uh, probably take my caffeine uh, intake down a little bit too. Then, it, yeah, and so the caffeine will actually inhibit the calcium uptake. So, yeah, yeah, caffeine it. within two hours before or after your calcium, you're not going to take that in. So, um, it, it gets pretty tricky when you get. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm trying to balance out all these little variables and, and yeah. Whatnot. <laughs> yeah, so that would be something you could try is just you know including some calcium with the red meat meals. Um, you know, will it help? Maybe, maybe not, you know, and maybe the donating will help. Maybe not. So yeah, it's one of those things. No, no. Yeah. I appreciate the, I know you can't really give me hard answers, but <laughs> all right, cool. Uh, two more questions. And we'll get you out of here. Sorry. You've taken oh, yeah, so long. No problem. Matt, you, you go. Oh, okay. So the first question was uh, in regards to sleep, how important is sleep and uh, what's the optimal time to kind of get your good you know, rest in, get some growth hormone activated. So for the people that aren't familiar with Stan and I, we talk about sleep more than food. Um, so that's how important it is. It, I see Pap uh, hanging on the wall there. Yeah. it's uh, <laughs> So people don't even realize that they're, they're getting a terrible night's sleep a lot of the times. And so literature, they've actually been able to do a really good job of kind of quantifying the, the impact. And um, I think it was back in 2012, I think it was Edel Chivo and, and his team. They brought in uh, some people and they had, they did a sleep study where they were able to house these people and they had the metabolic chamber. So they were able to control for uh, calories in and their energy expenditure and they equated everything and they had them sleep for eight and a half hours and five and a half hours and started to compare the two. And they, they took all these different parameters and they showed that when they got five and a half hours versus eight and a half hours, their, uh, lipolysis went down by like 55%. So their, their fat 
burn it down by 55% and their muscle wasting went up by about 60. And so this kind of thing, a lot of it, you know, there's a lot of different mechanisms for this, but my background in IGF-1, part of the reason that's happening is because there's a complete shift in your IGF-1 axis. You've got all these binding proteins and those dictate behavior. So they've done studies in the military looking at, you know, soldiers down, down range. They're under a high stress level. They're not sleeping very well. They're not eating very well. And they've got a high physical demand. So that sounds a lot like bodybuilders, right? <laughs> Student athletes or a lot of other people in society that have a stressful job, right? Yeah. Right. Within six to eight hours, this IGF-1 axis had completely shifted. And so it started promoting muscle wasting. And part of the reason that happens, IGF-1 is a peptide hormone, so it's a very short half-life. It's you know basically converted from, from growth hormone liver, but... Um, that's what's going on there is the, the body, you know, we're, we're programmed to survive. And so the body, that's what it's doing is it's, it's, that's its response to kind of survive these things. So if it's getting very low sleep, it will start to promote muscle wasting. It'll start to hang on to fat. It will affect your blood pressure. I mean, your, your anxiety levels will, will be off the charts. I mean, it, sleep is associated with every, you know, adverse health outcome or poor sleep, I should say is affect, you know, is associated with pretty much every adverse health outcome. It can throw off your hormone balance and that throws off a lot of other things too. I mean, it is just, it is so, so, so important. So what we recommend is, and this is based on the body of, of literature, seven to nine hours of uninterrupted sleep and try to get to sleep before midnight. Now you've got, you know, the first responders and, and firefighters and things like that. And, and, you know, nurses, and there's just, there's people that work graveyards. I live in Vegas. I mean, it's just, it's a thing. So, for those people, they're not going to get to bed before midnight. So getting to bed at a time and trying to give themselves that seven to nine hours of sleep is, is just going to be important. So then for anybody, they can use blackout blinds. They can use, you know, noise canceling headphones if possible, earplugs. Um, just get rid of any kind of distractions, um, whether that be, you know, animals, pets, things like that, jumping on the bed. Uh, for a lot of people, they have sleep apnea. A lot of the, the people we work with, because they're larger people, you know, when you lay down, all this mass comes up on your throat. They don't even know it, but they're waking up. Uh, at this NFL camp, we had one of the guys share with us, you know, he was in bed for nine hours. He's always sleeping for nine hours. He went and had a sleep study. He was actually asleep for less than two because he was waking up and the wake up going to sleep was over a minute. So that's common. I mean, that, and that is common, which is just blows my mind. So how do you tell if this is going on if you don't want to sleep study? Well, record yourself, you know, set your phone up and record yourself and see how much you're moving. See, you know, when you're waking up, usually you can kind of tell and, you know, there'll be some sounds. If you have a significant other, you know, for our top athletes, you know, if they're coming into competition, you know, we have that uncomfortable discussion with their spouse that, you know, they need to go sleep in this other room by themselves, you know. For, yeah. What's really going on? Yeah. So, um, that's where people, and it, again, it comes back to prioritizing it. People need to prioritize it. For anybody that's got sleep apnea, if they're snoring and they're waking up tired, CPAP is probably the way to go. Like they're probably right. just going to have to go get one. You can get a dream station at Walmart. Um, you can get different kind of nose cannulas or face masks, you know, whatever. And they're uncomfortable to begin with and getting used to it so takes a minute. But um, the, the outcomes are just, they're, it's life changing. So Right. I've anecdotally observed that too. I'll be like in prep and I'll wake up at five hours weigh myself and I'll go back to bed for another three or four. My weight's all time low if I get that extra sleep in. So that's just an anecdotal observation um, mm -hmm. for myself um, even. 
So do real quick question, do naps kind of play a picture in there? Let's say you need a nap. I'm sure since you're not sleeping long enough, it doesn't really shift any, um, anything like that. I mean, you could go into that. So naps can be beneficial, but they need to be less than a half hour. Gotcha. Because if you're sleeping longer than that, you're getting deep enough into that uh, sleep cycle that when you wake up, you'll actually probably be more drowsy. And it's right. off than when you did it. So if you're going to take a nap, the power nap is the way to go. Like in probably 20 minutes or less is, is ideal. You know, but that comes back to why do you need the nap, right? Are you, you need the nap because you slept like shit last night? You know, like wh what's the real you know, source of this problem? Are, are you, you need a nap because you got sleep apnea? Do you need a nap? Whatever it is, right? right. Uh, can they be beneficial? Sure. But I would, you know, really step back for folks and, and really have that, you know, self-evaluation of why, why is this going on? Mm -hmm. So let's say it was from like kind of a bad night of sleep. Would you recommend a nap or would you say just kind of wait it out until your next sleep cycle and just kind of. As long as the nap isn't going to interfere with tonight's sleep. Gotcha. That's, that's yeah. the thing, right? Is, is don't do anything today. You know, you can't change last night, but today you can, you know, set yourself up for, for success tonight. Um, mm -hmm. But people don't realize also in terms of nutrition, this is, <laughs> you know, they don't think about it. Uh, simple carbohydrates, taking in some simple carbohydrates like white rice or, or, you know, some other simple carbohydrate source within four hours of when you're going to go to bed can uh, reduce your sleep onset latency. And sleep onset latency is how fast you're falling asleep. So to reduce that, that means you're falling asleep faster. So simple carbohydrates can actually promote you falling asleep faster within four hours of going to bed. So you can kind of time your carbohydrates, you know, a little bit during the day for that too. Yeah. Damon, I was told to not eat after six o'clock. What are you, what are you telling me? This is blasphemy. the internet knows, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Cool. Well, uh, we'll, like, we'll get you out of here, Damon. Um, I really appreciate your time, man. This is a great conversation. I love talking. No problem, man. Thanks for having me on. We'll do this again for sure. Definitely. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Um, yeah. so, uh, is there anything you wanted to maybe plug or promote? Sure. <laughs> Please, yeah. uh, so Please. if anybody wants, they can follow me on Instagram. It's at Dr. Damon McCune. Uh, my website's alliedperformancellc.com. So if anybody has questions, feel free to reach out. Um, and I, I just appreciate your time, you know? Yeah, most definitely. Um, I'll have, yeah, all the links for downloads in the description as well. I'll have Damon's links down below. Um, are you going to be at the seminar in SAC maybe, or in this area? I was going to try, but we'll kind of see how things play out at this point. Okay. Cool. You know, <laughs> some I, unforeseen changes, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The detour to uh, some other yeah. part of the United States. Right um, now, I'm I'm planning on it. I'm going to try okay. to, but but we'll see. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully, I'll see you there. I'll be at that one. Um, if anybody's watching and you want to go to SAC, I'll, I'll, I'll wind up with some people too. Uh, Matt, yeah. you're probably going to be in lab, so I can ask you. <laughs> yeah, probably. But no, but if you can, man, we'll, we should, you should yeah, out here. Tight. Time, maybe I'll cut some time off. Hoping I'll work. Yeah, so, that'd be cool. yeah. Now one's going to be at uh, Mark Bell's Super Training Gym, um, right. yeah. in front of me. But uh, for anybody that wants to register for any of these seminars, you can just go to standefforting.com. They're they're free to attend. Um, and so he's uh, over on the East Coast still right now, making his way back. So yeah, yeah, cool. definitely. You can follow his journey on on on. I'll put his Instagram in there too. Um, but it's really cool. I think the the one I went to uh, a couple of years back is just a great opportunity to to talk to people because a lot of people have some of these, if you're experiencing some of those issues from the traditional dieting style, it's really cool to see all these people come together. And then some of them have already tried it. Some of them are, are looking for something to maybe, um, you know, 
help. And uh, it's really cool to be around a lot of like-minded people who maybe experience some of the same problems as you and, and whatnot. So, yeah. Well, it's, it's great to meet all the, the people that show up too, because I learned from the audience, you know, I, it's, it's great definitely. For, for us too, because I mean, there's, you know, every situation is going to be a little bit different and it's, it's always, right. you know, as a practitioner, it challenges us to, to learn more and stay on our toes. So Most definitely, you can always learn something from, from, from everybody, I believe. And then absolutely talking with people. So cool, man. Awesome. Uh, well, yeah, keep in touch and uh, hopefully we'll do this again. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you guys. Have a good time. Cool. Yep. Talk to you soon, man. Yep. Later. Bye.